You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ by your spirit. Jesus, who is our hope, all of our hope is in him. All of our hope is in the reality of Christ's resurrection on our behalf. This historical event that is filled with theological and personal meaning, Lord. The, 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 the reality, the truth that transforms lives. And Father, I pray that you would be with us right now, Lord, as we've been celebrating and now we're going to hear from your word, God, I pray that you would speak. God, I pray that you would be with our ears so that we could hear your voice, not my voice, Lord. We want to hear your voice coming through your word. I pray that you would open our minds so that we would be able to understand and appreciate what took place 2,000 years ago when Christ died and rose again. I pray that you would be with our hearts to believe. Lord, and that we would allow ourselves to be transformed by this incredible reality of Christ's resurrection for us. Lord, we love you and we pray that you would be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, our ushers are coming up and down the aisle right now. They'll They'll be able to put a Bible in your hand, so just raise your hand or holler at them. If uh, you need a Bible, um, so that you'll be able to uh, follow along with the message of this morning. You know, beginning in the, at the beginning of the 20th century, just about every nation on planet Earth was ruled by some form of monarchy. A, a queen, a king, a royal family. I, I mean, there were a few exceptions. France and the United States had a republics. But just about every country was ruled by a, a king or a queen. But as that century unfolded, after two horrific world wars and after two uh, massive communist revolutions in Russia and in China and and other other parts of the world, kings were were becoming less and less common. In fact, one of the kings, after World War II, King Farouk of Egypt had this to say. He said, the whole world is in revolt. Soon there will only be five kings. The king of England the king of spades, the king of clubs, the king of hearts, and the king of diamonds. And King Farouk was right. I mean, he said that in 1948, four years later, in 1952, there's a revolution in Egypt, and Farouk is out, and Nasser is in. And that that story just kept retelling itself in nation after nation, year after year. So now we come to the 21st century, there's just a handful of nations that are ruled by monarchies today. But I'm not sure if you've noticed, in our culture, there's been a resurgence, a a renewed interest in kings and queens, in royalty. It's it's in our movies. It's it's in our television programs. it's, It's everywhere. I mean, Will and Kate have helped. They've made the royalty cool again. And everyone's talking about Harry and Meghan's wedding and how exciting that is. But the, there's something odd that in a society that is so suspicious and skeptical about absolute power, and we have all of these parameters within our political system to prevent that from ever getting in the hands of one individual, in our society, although we're so suspicious of it, we're somehow drawn to it. We're fascinated by it. 
And I would suggest to you today that hardwired into every human heart, into our psyche, into our soul, we are searching for a king. That all of us deep down are longing for someone and longing for somewhere. There's a person, there's someone that we think can help us or rescue us or save us. And there's somewhere, there's a place that's, that's better than this place where we are right now. Well, you find yourself in a Christian church on Resurrection Sunday. And so you can, you can probably guess that I, I'm here to tell you today that Jesus is that someone. He is that person. And that eternity with him is that place. That is that somewhere that all of us are longing for. Jesus is the king. That's what Christians believe. We believe that this obscure carpenter from the countryside is truly the king of the cosmos. That he rules over all and that he was resurrected from the dead, that he is the king. And in Mark chapter 10 today, we're going to see how Jesus defines his kingship. What does it mean for Jesus to be a king? So let's pick up the story, Mark 10 verse 42. It says, Jesus called them to him and said to them, he's having a conversation with his disciples. He said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. He says rulers, he's talking about kings. He says the, the rulers of the Gentiles, the Gentiles simply meant the nations. So the kings of nations, they, they rule in a certain way. They lord it over, they overpower the people. They, they oppress the people that they are called to lead. And he says, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That last verse, verse 45 right there, sums up Jesus' rule as a king. The kind of king that he is. And he is the kind of king that all of us are searching for. And, and this morning we're going to see three things about his kingship, about the way that Jesus Christ rules. The first one is this, is that Jesus is a king who came to serve. Jesus is a king who came to serve. He said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Now he uses that phrase, the Son of Man. Now, some of you might be here scratching your head thinking, well, didn't Jesus continually claim to be, the, to be the Son of God? Why is he saying that he is the Son of God? Is this some sort of typo or error in the Bible here? Why is he saying he's the Son of Man? Is it the important thing that he claimed to be the Son of God? Well, see, there was, there was important meaning for the Jewish people in that term, Son of Man. And Jesus is talking to his disciples who would have been brought up with an understanding of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies, with predictions about someone who was coming, someone who was going to come, who was going to be called the Son of Man. This is one of those predictions, Daniel chapter 7 Verses 13 to 14, Daniel has a vision. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. The son of man was to be a king. That all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As soon as his disciples heard Jesus use the phrase son of man, they would have immediately thought of Daniel 7. The one who was coming, who would have a kingdom. But notice He was going to have a kingdom and that all people's nations and languages would serve him. But then Jesus says, son of man in Mark 10. Do you see it there? And he says, he's the son of man, not so that other people would serve him, but that he came not to be served, but to serve. And and this is quite surprising what Jesus says here, that he would be a king that would serve his people. Also notice how it says the Son of Man came. Jesus is not from here. He came from heaven. He came from the presence of God. He was God in the flesh. And Jesus claimed time and time again that God was his Father, making him equal with God. He said things that only God could say. He offered people forgiveness. He received worship. He healed the sick. He performed miracles. Jesus came from heaven. It says the Son of Man came. Now, the Creator came to live among His creation. Now, so if anyone was entitled to be served, it was Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, it, it wouldn't have been out of order for Jesus to sort of show up on the scene and say, Peter, I'd like a grape. Get one now, please. Bartholomew, go grab one of those big fig leaves and start fanning me down. Nathaniel, you're carrying me for the next three miles. That would have been completely acceptable in light of the fact that he came. He's not like us. He came to be with us. He was fully human, but he was also fully God in the flesh. But he came to serve. You know, as I read through the Bible, as I read the New Testament, as I learn more and more about Jesus and try to imitate his way of life and, and how he lived and how he loved, as I, as I look through what's written and recorded about Jesus, the truth is there's a lot of things that I simply can't imitate about Jesus. I, I can't go over to my neighbor's pool and say, watch this, and start walking on water. I can't go into the hospital and put mud on someone's eyes who's been blind and then so that they can be healed. I, I, I can't imitate Jesus in a lot of ways, but this is one way where I can imitate Jesus, where all of us can imitate Jesus. We can walk into a situation and say, how can I serve? How can I serve the people in this room right now? How, how can I serve the people in this neighborhood right now. I love how Martin Luther King Jr. put it. He said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. That's Mark chapter 10. All of us have the opportunity to live great lives by living lives of service in light of Jesus who came to serve us. Jesus' greatest expression of service happened the night before he was crucified. As his disciples were walking around the streets of Jerusalem and surrounding areas, their feet were dirty and it was customary that someone, normally a servant, would wash everyone's feet. And on the night, Jesus, the night before Jesus was crucified, he washed his disciples' feet. He took water. 
Water which he created. Water, that transparent, tasteless, liquid chemical that's the key to all of life. He himself constructed every single individual molecule containing two hydrogens and one oxygen on the molecular level. And then, and then he created a lot of it. 1.3 billion cubic kilometers of water. Water that is always moving. It's melting on the mountaintops and flowing down rivers and into lakes and tributaries and then down into oceans. And then it's evaporating up into the sky. And then it's moving along clouds and then falling down again. And then the tides bring it in and then the tides retreat back out. Jesus is sovereign over all of that. Every molecule of water. And he took a collection of those molecules in a bucket. And he walked over to his disciples. And he knelt down at their feet. Jesus had designed the human foot. The, the 33 joints, the 26 bones, the tibia and the fibia connecting with the talus to, to establish the ankle. The, the, the big toe to help these awkward creatures somehow find a way to stand upright. The arch of the foot, which is, which is something that architects still use today to, to, to create a strong structure to, in order to bear the weight of these human beings. He took water which he made, feet which he designed, and he scrubbed the dirt off of them. He came to serve. You see, this is good news. The God of the Bible is a giver. The God of the Bible is free to serve. He doesn't need anyone to serve him. And so he came to serve. So many of us think about religion as, as us doing these good deeds, trying to serve you know, a higher power with hopes that the higher power would be pleased with us and respond to us. That's the message of religion. That's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is not that we are serving to please the higher power, but that the higher power has come to serve in order to rescue us. And it's not that we are waiting for the higher power to respond to us. No, the higher power is waiting for you today to respond to him. The God of the universe came, lived among us, and served us. He came to serve. Then he says, and to give his life. So he's a king who came to serve. And secondly, he's a king who came to sacrifice. A king who came to sacrifice. He came to give his life. In southern France, about ten days ago, it was a day just like any other day. People moving about, walking down the street, driving up and down the road, going shopping. And then a deranged, evil gunman claiming allegiance to ISIS carjacked a car, shot the driver, drove around, went into a supermarket, shot more people, and then took the rest hostage. The, the, the police arrive, the place is surrounded, they begin hostage negotiations. They're trying to rescue the rest of the people inside the grocery store. And that's when this man, Lieutenant Colonel Arnaud Beltram, who was one of the negotiators, 
Ask the gunman if he could change places with one of the hostages. His life for one of their lives. And the gunman agreed. And so this woman was freed. She, she, she walked out un, unharmed. She walked out of the supermarket that day. And, and Beltram walked into the place of danger. After a four-hour standoff, the gunman killed Beltram. His life was sacrificed for the life of another. They, they held a, a state funeral for him on Wednesday. The, the whole nation has really come to a standstill. Just, and, and all of the tragedy that that nation has experienced in the last several years. The, 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 the people of France are just standing in awe of the reality of sacrifice. We are inherently so selfish as human beings. So that when we see someone do something like that, it blows our mind. He gave his life. The one person we haven't heard from in the story is the woman who was set free that day. What's her life going to be like now? How's it going to feel for her the next time she goes to the grocery store? Even the most mundane activity will now have the most profound and powerful meaning for the rest of her life. If you're wondering, what could it possibly feel like to know that someone died in your place? What could it possibly feel like to live in light of such an incredible sacrifice? What would it be like to be her? Well, if you're asking that question, the person you should be asking is the person who invited you to church today. Because Christians understand what it means to live in light of a sacrifice. You might think your Christian friends or family members are a little weird. And it is true. Christian lives, Christians live different lives from the rest of the world. But we're not living different lives because we're trying to serve a God in order to please him. No, we're living different lives because even the most seemingly mundane, trivial things have so much meaning because we are living lives that, that came as a result of a sacrifice. That Jesus gave his life for us and that changes everything. The way that we look at finances, the way that we look at marriage, the way that we look at relationships, the way that we look at our health, it changes everything about us. He came to be a sacrifice. And then he describes the purpose of his sacrifice at the end of the verse. He says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As a ransom for many. Jot this down. He's a king who came to save He's a king who came to save. The Greek word for uh, this translated ransom there, it's lutron. It means the payment that is made to set a prisoner or a slave free. Jesus didn't come to lead a revolution. He came to pay a ransom. His death was not some sort of uh, tragic martyrdom or, 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 or 
tragedy. No, it was intentional. He came to lay down his life to be a ransom, to make a payment. You see, at the time in which Jesus was walking this earth, it was a very different sort of political and and economic arrangement. If you were unable to pay your bills, there was no bankruptcy protection. There were no lawyers that could sort of help you stall. or there, there, You couldn't consolidate. There was, there was no strategy. If you could not pay your bills, you had to become the slave of your lender. Some of you are in debt right now and you're, you, you, it feels like slavery already, doesn't it? But imagine this. Imagine if Visa and MasterCard and American Express and Capital One, rather than sending you, you know, a friendly email or a nice letter saying, you know, here's your minimum payment. You just, just try to, here you go. Just pay it if you want to. <laughs> what if they showed up at your door with a couple of thugs and a van in the driveway? And what if they took you away until you worked enough hard labor in order to pay back what you owe? That was, that was the economy, that, that was the structure in the society in which Jesus was teaching at the time. That if you went too deep into debt, you became a slave. Jesus says that he came to be a ransom, to, to set slaves like that free You see, the Bible tells us that our sin has put us into debt. And our debt has put us into slavery. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Sin puts us in debt. Sin puts us in slavery. And we cannot free ourselves. Now some of you are thinking, well, you know, that's okay, that's okay. I haven't sinned that much. My debt can't be that bad. Also, on the other hand, I've done a lot of good deeds, so I've got to have some merit that will counterbalance the demerit. And and, and, I'm sure that it will all work out. Listen, that's not the way, that's not the way the Bible describes the world. That's not the way the Bible describes God. That's not the way the Bible describes us. You see, When we sin, we sin against an infinite God. And therefore the debt is an infinite debt. And it's an eternal punishment that is to be paid out over the course of eternity. You see, sin is serious. God has given his commands. He's given us a conscience. And we violate violate both repeatedly. And at its, at its very core, the, the, the essence of sin, if you were to, to, to distill down every sinful and perverse behavior from, from a white lie to a friend to heinous murder in the first degree, if you were to, to get every single sin down to its very core, every sin has one thing in common. It's rebellion against the kingship of God. Every time that we choose to sin, sins that we think are big or things that we think are small, there is an infinite debt because we are telling an infinite God, my way is better. I'm going to rule over this situation or I am going to rule over my life. I am going to reject you as king. 
going all the way back to the very first sin in the Garden of Eden. Some of you might, might think, you know, Genesis 3 is, is just, it's just a complete overreaction. I mean, Adam and Eve, they ate, they took a couple of bites of a piece of fruit. But this is what was going on in Adam and Eve's mind. Listen to what the serpent said in his conversation with Eve. He says, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. It wasn't just about the fruit. And whether we're conscious of it or not, when we disobey God's law, when we violate our conscience, we are revolting against the kingship of God. Well, some of you might say, well, I mean, that's fine, but I, I don't even believe in God. I don't think there's enough evidence that there, that there is a, a God out there that, that, that we could be in debt to in the first place. Well, listen, if you're here today, first of all, I just want to say, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that you, as, a, as an atheist or as a polite agnostic, you chose to come to a Christian church on Easter weekend. I applaud you for that. Thank you for coming. But I, want, I just want, want to shoot straight with you for a minute. Is your disbelief in God founded on evidence or on personal choice? Really, ask yourself. Is it based on evidence or is it based on personal choice. You know, I, I read a quotation from uh, a professor from New York University. He's a professor of philosophy and law. His name's Thomas Nagel. And I, I was, he's an atheist, but I was, I was refreshed by his honesty. I think what we need is to have theists and atheists and agnostics. Let's have some honest dialogue with one another. I, listen to what he said. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. One of the tendencies it supports is the ludicrous overuse of evolutionary biology to explain everything about life, including everything about the human mind. Darwin enabled modern secular culture to heave a huge sigh of relief by apparently providing a way to eliminate purpose, meaning, and design as fundamental features of the world. This is a somewhat ridiculous situation. It's just as irrational to be influenced in one's beliefs by the hope that God does not exist as by the hope that God does exist. Is it based on evidence or is it based on personal choice? Based on what the Bible says in Genesis 3, you know, if you eat the fruit, then you'll be like God. Chances are it's personal choice. It's, you don't want the universe to be a universe that's ruled by a king. You want to rule your own universe. But this king has come to save all of us who have revolted against his rule and his reign. 
He came to serve and sacrifice and to save. Not some group of innocent people who were just, you know, coincidentally taken hostage and needed to be set free. No, he came to save and sacrifice his love for those who have been living in active rebellion against him. This is the kind of God, this is the kind of king that Jesus is. He died to pay my debt. He died to pay your debt. I love how John Stott sums up the the truth of Jesus as king and dying on the cross. He says, every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I'm here because of you. It's your sin I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your debt I'm paying, your death I'm dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. Whether you think that your sins have been minor or major, the one thing all of our sins have in common is all of them have been us rebelling against God as king. And he has come to rescue us and to redeem us. It's something we can't do on our own. Psalm 49, 7 and 8 says, Truly man, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. Even if we were so serious in our religious beliefs that we were willing to sacrifice our own life for God, it wouldn't be enough because God is infinite and we we need to pay it. An infinite debt needs to be paid. So Christ came as God in the flesh, the only one who could pay that infinite debt. And then Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. He's our ransom. Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was finished paying our debt. When Jesus rose from the dead, when the stone rolled away, when Christ walked out of that tomb, he was saying, payment confirmed, transaction complete, debt canceled. And you have an opportunity here this morning to return to the king, to to repent, to turn away from your sin, and to trust in this king who loved you enough to come and to serve and to sacrifice and to save us who have done nothing but rebel against him. He's the author of life, the creator of the cosmos, the sustainer of the universe, the ruler of nations, but he's the lover of sinners. And he has come to set us free by paying our ransom. And so what I'd like to do right now is I'd like to ask you to bow your heads with me in a word of prayer. And as you're bowing your head, if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you already know what this is about. You, you know about the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made uh, for you. This is a time for us to reflect and marvel on his goodness and his grace and to celebrate all that this morning means. But for those of you who are here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I, ju- I just want to talk to you just for a minute. And I want to invite you, if, if, if you're hearing more than just some guy 
talk to you right now, if you're hearing God speak to you right now, if things are beginning to make sense, if the reality of the weight and the responsibility of your debt, of your sin, is weighing on you right now, if if the truth of who Jesus is and what he did is making sense to you for the first time, I want to invite you to pray with me. I'm going to pray a really simple prayer, and you can repeat it after me out loud, you can say it quietly in your own words, but this is... This is, a, this is a prayer to raise the white flag, to end the rebellion, to, to return to the king, to surrender your life to him. And so with our heads bowed, let's pray together. So you can just begin your prayer by just saying, God, thank you for sending Jesus. And I admit and confess to you that I have sinned. I have done things I should not have done. I have said things I should not have said. I have thought things that I should have never allowed to enter into my mind. And I ask for your forgiveness today. And I believe in Jesus and I believe that he died on the cross for me to pay my debt and I don't want to live like I'm the king or the queen of my life anymore I want you Jesus to be king of my life. I want your spirit to fill me. I want your commands to guide me. I want to live a life of service for you because you came to serve and save me. And so Father, I pray for every person who has just prayed that prayer. I pray for every person who's here today that might have prayed that prayer last week or last year or last decade, Lord. I pray that in this place there would be so much joy, so much joy in your salvation that you have made possible through the death, the burial, the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. So God, be with us. Be present with us right now as we celebrate Christ's resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.